Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John. We're going to be reading John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Right now, before we pray, I would ask you to look at your scripture sheet or look at your Bible, whichever one, if you have your scripture sheet or if you have your Bible, and look at John 8, 12. We're going to read that together. I want us to read it aloud in unison. Read with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Putting it simply, we will focus on that statement by Jesus throughout the entire message. Before we do, let's pray and ask him to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you. Thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know your presence. Father, we pray that during this time, as we hear your voice in our hearts, not the voice of John Sartell, but your voice, oh, Father, we pray that there would be a growing reverence in our hearts, A bowing that is not only a bowing of head, but a bowing of heart and soul and mind before you. 
Help us to know, Father, this morning, your majesty, your glory. We bow before you as your priests right now, praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ, praying for Garnet and Leslie Murphy, that, Father, you would bless them and continue to wipe away the tears and give them strength. We pray for David Mattingly. Father, we thank you for the improvement of this week, and we pray that hour by hour, day by day, week by week, there would be a growing improvement. Restore his health, Father, completely. We pray for Donna McManus, that her overall condition will improve, that she would be able to have the necessary knee surgery. Father, bring healing to her. We thank you for her testimony. Continue to bless Eileen and Dan Wood, Father. We pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and insight to know exactly what is wrong, that the treatment would be appropriate. We pray for Becky Gaswhite, Father, that you will give her a vision of all that you have prepared for her. Give us all that kind of vision, Father, that we might look forward with anticipation. We pray for Phil Halley. Thank you so much, Father, for how over the weeks and months you have brought health and restoration, and we pray that will not stop, Father. We pray that you'll continue to bless him, body and soul, that his healing would not only be physical, but would be spiritual also. We pray for Sylvia Clarendon. We thank you for her love for Christ's covenant. And we pray that you would bless her, Father, and give her health. We pray for Ted and Joyce Johnson, that you would strengthen them for these times, and that, Father, they would find great blessing and joy in each other, and that, Father, they too would look forward with anticipation. Now, our Father, we bow before you and ask you to teach us. Teach us what no other human being can teach us. Teach us what no preacher can teach us. Father, Speak to us. We're your children. Give us a greater understanding of this great story and this great Savior. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The dawning of a transcendent, unconquerable, and unending light. Why did John write his gospel? We don't need to guess, do we? John gives us his reason for writing the gospel, his own personal purpose statement. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I know what John's purpose was. We've only heard it a hundred times in the last two months. And you're going to hear it a hundred times in the next two months until we know it by heart. Look at John 20, verse 30. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Signs that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In every chapter, in every chapter, either the Apostle John or John the Baptizer or Jesus himself is speaking and demonstrating the deity of Jesus. Someone has said that Christianity is Christ. I know what the person was trying to say, and I agree with the statement, but I would say it differently. Christianity stands or falls on the deity and humanity of Jesus. If he's not the Son of God from glory, then he's a liar. He's a charlatan, a deceiver, or he's insane. Because on every page of the gospel, he claims to be God. There is no debate about that. Mark this, especially in John's gospel, and especially in our passage this morning, he mentions it. Jesus is always speaking of his pre-existence, his existence before his birth. He is not speaking of some kind of Hindu reincarnation where one is continuously being reincarnated to life as an animal or of another human being. Jesus is speaking of coming from being God in glory. Being God in glory and also being with God in glory. He also speaks, especially in John's gospel, he does it in the passage this morning, of returning to the Father when his mission is done. He says, there's come a time that I am going where you cannot follow. I'm going home. When were you born? We mark the beginning of our lives with a certain hour and date and place, a geographical place. I was born on September 8th, 1944. That was after a brief stay in my mother's womb. I did not exist before September the 8th, 1944, except in my mother's womb. I was born in San Diego, California. I did not exist in another geographical location before San Diego. Jesus, on the other hand, claims he existed in glory as God and was with God. And he came from there to Bethlehem, to Israel, to Galilee. John records Jesus proving his claims by doing. He could claim to do that. He could be a liar. He could claim to do that and be insane. John records Jesus proving. He calls them signs. We call them miracles. But he says signs. Signs of what? Signs of his deity. 
John records Jesus proving his claims by doing only what God could do. Only God could do what Jesus did. John records Jesus making verbal claims to deity. He keeps telling his disciples, the crowds and Jewish authorities, who he is and from whence he's come and from where he, into where he's going. Chapter 7 and 8 just continue that theme. We've seen it in the first six chapters. And actually in chapter 7 and 8, those claims become more intense we've seen in the last few weeks. In chapter 7 and 8, we find Jesus in the middle of a firestorm. Why? Because of his claims. He's attending the great feast of tabernacles in Jerusalem. It's a dangerous place for him to be as the Jewish authorities were already planning to kill him, plotting to kill him because of his blasphemy. In reading the entire eighth chapter, it's easy to get lost in the dialogue. It's simply an ongoing argument, a series of arguments, a series of of debates with the Pharisees about his identity and his mission. That's what it's all, the whole chapter. What a great chapter for us to assimilate in every way we can. Instead of saying, I'll be glad when we get over this, we ought to be saying, I need more of this. We are in the middle of a firestorm for a similar reason. Jesus was in the firestorm because he was claimed to be God and the authorities did not believe him. We're in the middle of the firestorm because we believe Jesus was and is the Son of God. And we believe his miracles. We believe he died an atoning death. We believe he was raised to life. We believe he returned to glory and resides there until he will return. And bring a final reckoning for all of history and all mankind. Let me ask you very simply. What I've just now said. Do you believe that about Jesus? We said we believed it just a few moments ago. Did you stand and say the Apostles' Creed? That's what we were confessing. We were confessing his deity. If you do believe that then you are at odds with the secular culture in the United States. The universities, our universities, scoff at your Jesus, at your faith. Every major institution of our land is at war with the supernatural Christ of the Gospels. The secular culture believes Christ's covenant reformed church is ludicrous and daily tries to marginalize her. This, I thought about this this week, about this next statement. And it's so disturbing. Folks, do you realize our culture is trying to do to Christ and Christianity, what Marxist Russia and China have tried to do for the last 100 years. That same effort is being made here. 
Do you understand that as a believer, we are in a firestorm like Jesus was? And like the Christians that went through in Russia and China. But we're going to do what Jesus did in the 8th chapter of John this morning. We're going to once more insist on our claim that he is the Son of God from glory. Just what Jesus did. One more piece of background. In the Mishnah, the Mishnah is an oral and written commentary on the Torah. It's a, a Jewish, an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. In the Mishnah, we have recorded the joy, elation, and dancing celebration that was expressed in the Feast of the Tabernacles. There were four huge lamps, we're told, in the court of women in the temple. In the evening of the Feast of Tabernacles, these huge lamps would be lit and the light could be seen all over Jerusalem from anywhere. And the Mishnah says this, listen to it. Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose, end quote. Sources say this went on every night of the feast. Scholars believe that it was in this context that Jesus stood and declares, I am the light of the world. I want us to think for a minute about the background of that statement. Where does it come from? Why was he saying that? This claim has a messianic background from the Old Testament. We read it this morning in our call to worship from Isaiah. We're all familiar with these words from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You, you know that. You know that text. Every Christmas we hear those words hundreds of times. We like them. Of whom do those words speak? They're describing Jesus. They're describing, Isaiah was describing, the coming Messiah. But he just wasn't writing and then stop and say, well, I've had this vision over here about to us a son is given. That's not what happened. That, those verses are inextricably entwined with what comes before. And I want us to look at those verses for just a moment. And I know, this is going to tempt you. You're going to look at it and say, why are we reading this? Just hang in there. And maybe this Christmas, when we read those words, you'll say, this is awesome. This section begins back in the 8th chapter of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 8, 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, 
It's because they have no dawn. Mark that. They have no dawn. They have no light. Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but they will behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Then he begins chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Isaiah was describing there. Now, for most of us that were reading that, said, what does this have to do with to us a son is given? Well, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, was describing what was taking place in the land. And it was awful. It was taking place in Galilee. It was taking place in the northernmost tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. Israel had been attacked by one of the most vicious nations in the ancient world, Assyria. The part of Israel most affected were those two northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. They were conquered by Syria. Much of the population, imagine this happening here in Memphis. Much of the population, most of the population was carried off into slavery, back to Assyria or down to Babylon. They had been replaced by Assyrians who moved into the land and brought their pagan gods with them. These people believed and practiced child sacrifice. It was barbaric. This was a dark time. Look at the words in verse 22. Distress and darkness and gloom of anguish thrust into thick darkness. Now this was not a physical darkness. The sun was still shining. It was a darkness of evil. A darkness of slavery. A darkness of cruelty and rape and murder. And instead of turning to the light of God's word, they turned to the false prophets of the pagans. That's what verse 19 means. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, these pagans say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. And the prophet says, should not a God inquire of the, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead? That's what a necromancer did. He went to the graveyard and inquired of the dead about the future. And the prophet adds in, in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to the word, it's because they have no dawn. It was so dark. The necromancer was a magician that sought answers by communicating with the dead. So the land was dark with evil and slavery and cruelty and murder and rape. And the Old Testament church would not turn to the light of God's word, but sought answers from communicating with the dead. The church, do you see that? We're seeing it today. The church just increased the darkness. But then the, the good news comes. It's as if Isaiah can look forward 700 years. God was giving him this. God was saying there's a Messiah coming. Let me tell you about him. There will be no gloom for her. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her 
who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Natalia. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Well, how did he do that? You read on, but in latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness. Those people that live there walk in darkness. Their descendants have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of Dignars, on them a light has shone. The gloom introduced by killing, by thousands being carried off into slavery. Now, the Assyrians taking farms and vineyards, that gloom would come to an end. And the people of Zebulun and Naphtali would witness the dawning of a great light. And that light would be the dawning of a new king, the dawning of the Messiah. And Isaiah identified it this way, for unto us, A child is born. Unto us a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His. Who is that? That's Jesus. That's the light. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was proclaiming Himself to be that light. Those men, every one of those men, knew of that passage in Isaiah. They knew the Messiah was called the light. He did not say, I'm the light of Israel. I'm the light of Galilee. (laughs) He said, I am the light of the world. Have you ever known anyone? Maybe you can say this morning afterward, you can come and tell me, and you can say, well, I've known some people that didn't say that, but they acted like they were that light. I think we know some of the same people. Uh, But no, we don't hear people saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm it. But Jesus said, this is who I am. And I'm proving it. He was not referring here to the physical brightness of his glory that the disciples saw. Remember when they went on the Mount of what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John, and he was transfigured before them. And we read this bright glory that came from him. It was the Son of God before the incarnation. Shining through. And it was blinding. It's like the noonday sun. Now he has that kind of glory. But that's not what he was saying. When he was saying, I'm the light of the world. That's not what he was saying. No. This was the light. The light of life that he brought to this fallen dark world. It was a powerful spiritual light. Every, you, we sang it. You know why we sang, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? It talks about Jesus making the blind to see and the deaf to hear and raising the paralyzed, making them walk. 
We sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. This is what he did. You see, he was pushing back the darkness. He was pushing back the effects of evil. It was a powerful spiritual light that would push back against the sin of this world and the results of sin in the world. It was the light of his word, the light of the Sermon on the Mount, the light brought by his grace, the light brought by his atoning death and resurrection. It was a light that made the blind to see and the deaf to hear. The light that healed the leper who had lived in darkness and isolation and poverty. It was the light that shone in the dark lives of the adulteress and the prostitutes. A light that embraced them in, their, in his grace and changed them forever. That was the light. Now, the Pharisees understood the audacious claim Jesus had just made. When he says, I'm the light of the world, what do they say? Look at it. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Your testimony is not true. You're just a man standing there saying, I'm the light of the world. They had ignored all the proofs. Why are you saying this? You're obviously lying. A debate ensues that takes the rest of the chapter. But this morning, we're only focused on that one verse, verse 12. What, what did Jesus say after he said, I am the light of the world? He makes the, most, makes the most astounding statement. And we usually just pass over it. Look at it. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. Now this statement is about those who follow Jesus. He says, whoever follows me, do you love Christ? Is he your Savior and Lord? If so, this morning he's speaking of you. This is what he's saying about you. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. Our relationship with Christ, he's saying, that our relationship with Christ makes us light to the world around us. Our love and knowledge of him, our love of his heart, it makes us, the Christ in us makes us light to the world around us. I want to call your attention to what the Apostle John said about Jesus. We're near the end. But I want you to, what the Apostle John said about Jesus in the first chapter. Look at John 1 verse 4. This is huge. In him was life. And the life was what? The light of men. And look at verse 5. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness could not overcome the light of Christ. Herod tried. He killed all those babies in Bethlehem, but he, he didn't get Jesus. The Pharisees tried, Pilate tried, Satan tried, the world crucified him. And what did he do with that crucifixion? Think about this. Here's this bloody, gory crucifixion, dying an atoning death for our sins. We talked about this last long week. Many of you have on a cross, many of you ladies have on a cross this morning. Beautiful cross. And that's a great thing. Because the cross, he turned it into 
a place of salvation, a place of grace, a place of wonder, a place of beauty. Here is the Savior dying for our sins. It's our salvation. A place. That's what he did. The darkness. And he turned it in, the darkness of Calvary, and he turned it in to a light that's brighter than the noonday sun in our lives. He turned the very crucifixion into a great light of salvation. The world, the world is still trying to put out his light. And now continue, and, and that light, it can't be put out. Marx, Lenin, Stalin tried in Russia. They outlawed the church. They burned the Bibles. They slaughtered Christians by millions. But the light kept shining. Mao Zedong tried in China. Perhaps he killed more Christians than any man in the history of the world. But he could not extinguish the life of the life of the light of Christ in his people. In fact, the church grew exponentially under his reign of terror. By millions, the church increased in China. You know, usually when you talk about death, it's, it's dark. Death is hard. You know, when we talk about light, we think about good things. Summer is here. School is out. We think about that we've finally gotten married and have this wonderful wife, a wonderful husband, our children are being born, and, and that's light. In many ways it is. But as we close, I want us to picture Christ at Calvary and the darkness of that and how he turned it into the greatest light. I want to talk about two Protestant bishops that were martyred October the 16th, 1555, in Oxford, England. Their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. As he was being tied to the stake, this man was being tied to the stake, he was going to be burned alive. He prayed this prayer. And there were a huge crowd there. That's why we know these words. This was his prayer. O Heavenly Father, I give unto Thee most hearty thanks that Thou hast called me to be a professor of Thee, even unto death. I beseech Thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver her from all her enemies. End quote. As they were being engulfed by the flames, Latimer encouraged Ridley. He cried over to him, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out, end quote. In their deaths, these men were showing forth the light of Christ to a dark world. Even then, even then. And then there was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. The 
great Protestant minister who preached the gospel, was jailed in Hitler's Germany. He was killed in a German concentration camp just days before Germany fell. A decade later, a camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging described the scene. There's several books written about letters and the effect that his life in the concentration camp had. And it was always pointing to the light that Bonhoeffer demonstrated during those dark days. But this is what the doctor wrote. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer. Before taking off his prison garb, he kneeled on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Even in the hard times, folks, even when Christians are dying, he said, they'll see the light. They'll see the light. I pray that Christ's covenant church will be that light in the darkness of Memphis for the years and the decades that God gives us here. And I pray for myself and I pray for you that even the darkest times of our lives that we will show forth the light that can only come from Jesus Christ. Amen.